welcome. Pull up a seat, grab a cup, and get ready to share, listen, and learn. This is my favorite coffee story with your host, Aniko Samoji. You'll hear about the stories about coffee itself, the history, health benefits, recipes, and more, along with some personal stories inspired by coffee and the lifestyle. Now, here is Aniko Somoji. Welcome to our listeners. We are so glad you've joined us at My Favorite Coffee Story and just would love to say hello to you from Anikona Farm and uh, we have a wonderful guest with us today, Scott McMartin, and we're talking about the perfect coffee bean, the worldwide quest for the perfect coffee bean, and Scott McMartin is just going to share his stories about that. And before we introduce Scott, uh, I always love sharing a little bit about what's going on at the farm, at Anikona Farm, right above Kona um, in Halualoa, Hawaii. We had a great week. Uh, we're still getting ready for our next harvest. The trees are looking great. The beautiful green beans are coming along very nicely. But we were fulfilling orders this week as well as roasting. And we talked a little while ago about the importance of freshly roasting coffee. So the whole farm has been smelling like delicious coffee. And talking about the perfect coffee bean, if I may introduce our very special guest today, Scott McMartin, who has had close to 20 years of experience at Starbucks sourcing the perfect coffee bean, and the most perfect cup. He had been director of global coffee advocacy at Starbucks, and he'll be sharing stories about how that all was. He now owns and runs a very nice um, high-quality coffee company called Fundamental Coffee in Seattle and Austin, and they do small um, batches of delicious um, specialty coffee they roast they buy and they blend and um, just delicious fine coffee so we're going to hear a lot about that and we can't wait to welcome Scott McMartins Scott thank you so Hi, much for go. joining us today Hi My pleasure thanks for having me I'm really looking forward to our conversation Well as we are as well and our listeners are all around the world and we just love hearing favorite and special stories, and often favorite and special coffee stories. Um, We'd love to learn about how you became involved with Starbucks in those early days, a little bit about your early days of your career in the 1980s, and how you did become Director of Global Coffee Advocacy at Starbucks. Please share with us a little bit how you did become involved with that. Sure. Thanks again, Aniko, and hello, everybody. I began my uh, coffee career in, well, my Starbucks coffee career began in 1992, actually, when we were just a a small little company of 125 stores. But before that, as a college student in Boston and then later in San Francisco, I was particularly taken by coffee culture and this uh, idea that the coffee house was a, a gathering place for people to have intellectual debates and uh, discussions about really how to make the perfect cup of coffee and what was a, you know, even in those days, especially in Boston, there was a lot of uh, early discussion about the best brewing method and it sounds really geeky, but for me, even at the time, I thought it was a pretty 
pretty cool and interesting uh, discussion. And as my buddies led me out to the Bay Area, I discovered a much more kind of big and bold, aggressive style of roasting, which was uh, the so-called West Coast um, roasting style, pioneered by a lot of the Italian tradition in North Beach and San Francisco, and then also uh, largely a great deal of depth of people like Alfred Pete and Arnold Spinelli, who were, were big dark roast advocates and, and really proponents of, of blends, which I became very, very interested in. Well, please tell us a little bit more about um, Alfred Peets. I know that he came from the Netherlands, and he um, was the founder of Peets Coffee in, was it in Berkeley, California in the 50s? Would you say that he was a, a mentor or someone that you looked to for some of you know, the experiences that you then transferred over to Starbucks during those days? Alfred... Um was a was a really interesting character, and, and he founded the the first Pete's shop was on uh, Vine Street in in Berkeley in 1966, if I have that correct. And uh, for for me, I've been a, a Starbucks store manager for uh, about a year and a half, and was lucky enough to get involved with the coffee buying operation. Which, funny enough, was it was in San Francisco back in those days, not in not in Seattle. Um, very early on, and Alfred being based in the Bay Area became friends with my old boss, a great lady whose name is Mary Williams, and Mary had learned a little bit about the specialty coffee trade working with Alfred, and she had a background in the commercial trade working in New York and working on the brokerage side of the business, but specialty was relatively new to Mary uh, as well, and she introduced me to Alfred, and here I was, this this kid um, in my 20s with long hair, ponytail, and a big Pete's fan and loved Pete's from Mill Valley and, and loved Pete's from all over San Francisco. And there in walked this, this kind of grumpy looking old Dutch guy. And um, we uh, struck up an amazing friendship and I learned how to sample roast coffee and a lot of the, the real basic elements of coffee tasting and blending and, and those elements from, from Mary and Alfred. And Alfred especially love to spend time talking about sample roasting and, you know, what would make great coffee and what, you know, how, what the principles were in blending. And, um, he was just a lot of fun to be around. We really, we liked each other. We had lunch together for, I don't know, close to a, a year, I would say. We just had a, had a blast and we carried on that friendship until Alfred passed uh, a few years back. And, um, he's had been a great, a great mentor and a friend. And I even brought him on a couple of projects later on down the road at Starbucks. And um, he was just, uh, I don't know, I learned so much from the guy. And he was very generous with his knowledge and also a very tough teacher. He uh, expected a lot from people. And um, he didn't suffer fools well. And those are traits that I think I had innate in me as well. So we, we had a nice friendship. What a special relationship you definitely had. Thank you for sharing those stories. Did Alfred Peets learn some some of his experiences around coffee, possibly from his father? Indeed. His father was, was in the coffee business and actually um, a fairly well-known uh, tea trader. So when Alfred grew up, uh, he, he is Dutch, of course, he's from the Netherlands, and uh, growing up was, was exposed to a lot of the elements of the trade of, of tea, so tasting and travel to producing countries and 
sort of what those things uh, were about and, and became normalized as part of his life. And when he first started in in the industry, he was actually kind of a tea guy, apparently. And then he worked for a company called, uh, the first, it's an initial, but it's Johnson. It's not Johnson Johnson, it's a different company. And Alfred was a, was a merchant. And he started Pete's with the idea that he could bring fresh coffee uh, to the marketplace and make great blends. And the key thing was to start with very, very high quality green coffee. So that was a big piece for Alfred was looking at green coffee, looking at how um, the origin cared for uh, for coffee. And a big piece of his legacy is that. And he liked dark roasted coffee. He wanted coffee that could stand up to being roasted dark and still have character. I think that's one of the bad raps that, that is misunderstood about both the West Coast style of roasting and, and dark roasting, which I'm an advocate of. That's my company fundamental is built largely on uh, differentiating on ourselves being a dark roaster. And Alfred felt that you, you had great expression, depth, uh, level of, uh, from a, a flavor perspective, the coffees were kind of sweet and savory without being uh, too citric or too raw. You always thought that the perfect roast should not only showcase uh, the hard work of all the coffee farmers, but should speak to people in a way that is approachable. He sounds like such an incredible mentor and uh, just also an amazing friend. Uh, Did you find that when you were traveling and sourcing you know, that delicious coffee bean around the world. And I I thought it's it's incredible, Scott, that you have traveled oh over to maybe over twenty countries sourcing perfect coffee beans and you've bought possibly over a billion pounds of beans. Um, how were how all those tra- travels? And you must have met a variety of cultures and had amazing stories as you met some of the farmers. Please tell us and share a little bit about those stories. Sure. That, that's probably the, the best part of this journey for me has been literally meeting all these amazing people in, in all these countries who... There, there is not a lot in common with the people in, in Guatemala and in Ethiopia, except for the fact that they're bound by this, this one product and the one product is coffee. And, and so much family history and culture is tied into coffee production in, in all these countries, whether it's Brazil, Colombia, um, East Africa, Indonesia. And for me, just as a, as a small aside, I studied the, philosophy and history at the University of San Francisco, and I, I couldn't help but be amazed when I went to these origins to, to learn about you know, what, what was the history of coffee in all these sub-regions, and how, how did coffee processing become you know, the semi-wash process in Indonesia, and why did, you know, why did the guys in Guatemala ferment for 36 hours to make their coffee have, have this certain kind of flavor? And they used to keep these, these journals, these old moleskin notebooks that have literally like pages and pages of stuff that no one would find interesting but me about, you know, the old guy who has worked on the farm for 50 years who was in charge of, of production in the wet mill. And, you know, I had old pictures of the guy's log from 20 years of talking about rainfall and talking about microclimate on the farm and how he's seen 
changes and how they how they affected the, how big the crop was each year. And then for me, I would go back and look at ultimately what ended up in the cup. My job at Starbucks was really as a buyer was was one piece of just purchasing green coffee, but as a blender and the guy who was in charge for a number of years of all the tasters, it was critical to try to understand what what was the linkage between what was happening on the farms and in producing countries and with this product that traveled so far to get to Seattle and the other various roasting facilities that Starbucks had. Well, it's amazing you actually visited over 2,000 farms, and that that just must have been an incredible experience. I'm glad you had a journal. Would you be kind to maybe share one of your favorite farm visits with, with us, with our listeners, please? Sure. Um, I, I wouldn't mention any, any specific people because um, I didn't ask them for permission to talk about them. But Of course. I think, I think if I had to name a... Uh, a country and it's sort of like picking your favorite child, I guess. Um, I, I really enjoy uh, the culture and, and the experience uh, experiences I've had in, in Guatemala. And, and maybe it's because it's the place I've, I've been to more than any other in Central America. But um, I, I think the, the cultural piece in Guatemala and the, the welcoming nature that the farmers have had there, um, and this really goes for almost all of Oregon, so it's almost unfair to say that, but probably that country, because I've spent so much formative time there on farms, has a lot of special memories, and some of them are of great fun, and a lot of them don't have that much to do with coffee, to be honest. They're meeting people's kids who, now those kids are running those farms, and it goes incredible, or these great meals that I had, and I love to cook, so I remember you know, literally tending the barbecue with some of these guys. And they couldn't believe that this, you know, this white guy from Seattle could actually handle the barbecue and knew how to cook so well. And I made in Brazil one time I made paella um, and the Brazilian guys were just, just couldn't believe I knew how to make paella. Number one, number two, that I insisted on cooking at their house. Um, I mean, a lot of the cultural elements for me being really interested in food were, were food related and seeing some of the amazing ingredients and um, the tradition, um, a, lot, a lot of my notebooks, again, are filled with stuff like recipes, which, of course, when you get back to the States, it's a little bit of a challenge to find some of these ingredients. But I've, I've tried to make, um, from visits in Mexico, I've tried to make interesting moles uh, back in Seattle. And sometimes they work, but sometimes they don't. But it's you bring a piece of that with you, and it becomes part of, of who you are. And I tell those stories. I always think of those people. Yeah, that's incredible. By chance, have you brought some of those um, special barbecue flavors to when you have like a fundamental brunch at Jack's Barbecue? Do you ever share some <laughs> of those special Guatemala recipes? I haven't done that yet, but with um, with my friend Jack Timmons of, of Jack's, we're, we're going to look at some, trying to do some special coffees that might uh, lend themselves to making a barbecue sauce and then some dry rubs. It's one of the ideas that we're, uh, we're kicking around. So that would be pretty, pretty fun. I did bring back um, before the days of importing things was, uh, was a challenge to do on airplanes. These, these peppers from um, the Antigua region of Guatemala called chiltepes. And I don't know what that would even uh, be similar to in, in something you can find at a store here, or even a Latin American store here in, in the U.S., but they, they look like green peas, and you roast them in a very simple cast iron skillet, and 
mashed them up with a little bit of uh, white vinegar and onions and shallots. And they were really good. Also super, super hot. And it was sort of like a ghost pepper thing. You'd, you'd eat you know, 20 of them and you'd find the hot one and it would be super hot. But the rest had this amazing, sweet, complex, uh, almost herbal character to them. So that was, that was kind of a fun one. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. I know that you've done studies in culinary arts and you've also done studies as a sommelier. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those stories with our special guest, Scott McMartin, right after the break. Please join us again. And uh, we've been having so much fun talking about these special stories, visiting the farms, um, enjoying moments with families Uh, at the farm and also in Guatemala in particular. And we'll continue our nice chat with Scott in just a moment. We'll look forward to having you back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
We are speaking with our special guest, Scott McMartin, today, who was the director of global coffee advocacy at Starbucks for 19 plus years, but has lots of history um, sourcing the perfect cup, the most perfect coffee bean. We were just talking about all the visits that Scott had done to more than 2,000 farms around the world, and we were sharing some special um, times with families on the farm. And uh, sometimes that does involve cooking and sharing a good meal together. Uh, Now we're going to talk a little bit more with Scott about some of his studies and his culinary arts, what it was like to be a sommelier, even a beer judge. And then Scott also is a coffee grater. So tell us please a little bit, Scott, about how you ended up you know, weaving your experiences through those various certificates and experiences. Sure. Um, and again, thanks, thanks, Anko, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And in, in terms of the culinary piece, it, it's interesting. I, even as a, a really young kid, I enjoyed cooking. I always thought cooking was, was fun and combining flavors. And um, that was always part of my life. My parents both uh, liked to cook and still do. And sort of grew up with that and tasting things. It was, was part of my life. And as I worked at Starbucks over the years, a big part of my job was, was tasting and putting together blends. And I worked on a lot of the sort of ancillary products, if you will, from the ice cream to the partnership that Starbucks had with um, a local brewery here in Seattle called Red Hook uh, that, that made a, a really terrific beer that I got to work on that. And, worked on chocolate, but all those sorts of, of culinary pursuits led me to get a sommelier degree in 2009, and that was a pretty interesting challenge. And I, I did that, to be honest, just to further my, my sensory skills and tasting skills. And um, the test for the particular accreditation that I have is a, the International Sommelier Guild, and the actual test of tasting all these different wines and, and fermented products I'm told this is true. Test is longer than the Washington State bar exam, uh, the legal <laughs> bar exam. So I was pretty much amazed that uh, there was that much to learn about flavor. And whether you're tasting wine or, or, or coffee or, or food, it, it's a matter of learning the descriptive language. And what I took away from the, the wine world, um, a lot of people leave that wine school world with a very elated language and uh super complicated descriptors. And I, for me, it was the opposite. I wanted to make knowledge of wine or, or particularly coffee, which is the field that, that I was in, that still in, accessible to people. And the more flowery and esoteric the description, seemingly the more off-putting it is to people. I get these conversations where people would ask me questions. I would answer sort of this a certain way, this descriptive language, and they would look at me like I was crazy. And over the years, I just kind of developed that reflex to not do that anymore and to try to, there's nothing wrong with using fancy words or descriptive words, but if they're so, the language is so complex and so specific to you, then the person that you're sharing that, that drink with, whether it's coffee, wine, or, or a meal, they probably don't have that same exact experience of, I hear phrases like, that smells like my grandmother's basement or, you know, my, my uncle's jacket. It was a smoking jacket. I have no idea what that smells like. And my <laughs> uncle didn't have a smoking jacket. So, I, you know, things like that have really forced me and brought me into a way of 
writing about my coffee in, in my career now with Fundamental Coffee as accessible language that's easy to be understood and, and shared with others. What are some of your favorite descriptor words that, that you tend to use, Scott? I talk about the basics of, of acidity, body, flavor, and aroma quite a bit. And acidity is one of those ones that people get kind of stuck on thinking it means bitterness or, or true acid. Coffee's pH is uh, close to, to neutral, so it's not a highly acidic beverage. But those flavors of sourness, or of light roasted coffee, or poor quality coffee, and those flavors of bitter uh, unpleasant, sharp, almost metallic flavors are, are things that people don't like in a city, and I, I get that. Um, body is really how heavy the liquid is on your tongue. It's viscosity. If it weighs heavy, it's probably something similar to having heavy cream. If it's something light on your tongue, it's more like non-fat milk. Um, flavor is really the, the aggregate of everything. It's, is it, does it taste like chocolate? Does it taste like fruit? Does it taste like nuts? Um, and aroma is pretty basic. It's really what it smells like. And as a taster, the aromatic part is, has a huge, huge role in how we perceive and taste things. Um, sort of that organoleptic science of you know, what do things smell like? And if you plug your nose and taste virtually anything, you recognize that almost all of that taste experience is gone by plugging your nose so that the aromatic portion in describing or tasting is, is critical to what ultimately our, our palates experience. Very true. It, it sounds like then the experiences of being a coffee grater, sommelier, uh, your experience in culinary arts and being a beer judge has all kind of contributed, like you said, to tasting, which has then also contributed to finding that delicious cup of coffee. How did you see um, when you first started Starbucks in the 1990s and then how did you see coffee evolve and what were some of the sort of the trends that you would see with the actual sourcing of the beans or uh, the the quality of the beans? Sure, great question. I think early in the, the early 90s and mid 90s, you could argue is really that that renaissance of coffee culture in, in the U.S. and, and to a degree uh, internationally, where there was a Starbucks showing up in all these cities, and Starbucks did a great job raising the awareness of of coffee quality, and to some degree the espresso drink, which largely was not well known. Um, you know, the latte or the cappuccino you, maybe was in fancy restaurants, but in terms of a, of a drink, an espresso-based drink being accessible and knowledgeable to almost every American, that's, that's really a phenomenon that Starbucks has a lot to do with. And I, I saw that change, and then certainly the growth of, of that company and others during that period of time has made your average consumer much more knowledgeable about coffee to the point where even some of my, my customers at Fundamental ask me questions that are so specific and so technical in terms of water temperature and, you know, what are the specific uh, total dissolved, dissolved solids I should have in my in my water. And um, if I make, if I brew this pour over at, at 201 degrees, is, that, is the flavor really going to be bad? This is only, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing the technicality with which people um, 
get carried away about. And, and for me, it, it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. It's, it's a lot easier. But to answer your question more specifically, um, there's been a heightened level of awareness on, on quality. I think that's probably the biggest change. And that quality has been, there's a lot of competition in the, in the marketplace. Consumers can make a, a lot of choices with their, their coffee dollars. There's a lot of um, knowledge, a lot of brands, and I, I think one of the greatest bits of evidence is, you know, when companies like uh, fast food companies like McDonald's and such are, are spending advertising dollars trying to get cups of coffee sold, that is a real sign that the consuming public, certainly in America, has changed so dramatically from what it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And ultimately, that's good. It's raised awareness. It's uh, hopefully raised uh, coffee prices for farmers who desperately need good prices to stay in business. Um, for me, the quality thing is, is really uh, it's, it's what sustains this industry in addition to a lot of the increased awareness on environmental standards and human rights standards that have, that have occurred in the last 20 years. Yes, that's so true. Uh, it seems like at that time you were also responsible for new product lines at, at Starbucks. And I, I always think it's really wonderful when I see the new blends at Starbucks and like the, the anniversary blend or the Christmas blend. And you had a lot to do with those and the flavors of those. How did you come up with those blends, Scott? Sure, that was that was really great fun, and I was fortunate to have a, an unbelievably great team of, of tasters and men and women I worked with who who had incredibly great palates. And those guys, we all would would get into the tasting room and throw ideas around and put blends together, and it was a really democratic process. That even though I was the leader of that team my blend that I wrote down on a piece of paper and, and assembled and put in the cup, it was not clear whose was mine and whose was the guy next to mine who happened to work on the team. So it was a, a pretty cool democratic process and my blend did win often. I'm, I'm not shy to say that, but if someone else's who might've been a junior taster won, we celebrated that and, and it was a, it was a fun process to see. Um, so making coffee blends was, was great, and I've, I've carried that tradition forward with, uh, with Fundamental Coffee. We, we really we like to do blends. It's part of the differentiation for us. We're a dark roast company, and we like to sell blends. And back in my old, my old days, developing new blends was part of our uh, almost weekly activity. If we were getting ready for promotion months before that promotion would begin, we would be assembling the blends. Uh, the Christmas blend each year was a, was a big ritual for all of us. We would, we would start to think about that in, in October and August, what some of the potential components might be. Um, that, was, that was great fun. And some of the other products that we did were, were amazing, too. Um, I, I was particularly fond of the ice cream that the company did. That was a great product. And uh, we even did something that was a, a, cold, a cold coffee beverage called Mazagaran, which was a, really a precursor to... Uh, the cold brew, which has become kind of a, a trend and a, and a phenomenon recently. True. Would it be okay to ask you a little bit more about cold brew and sure. um, just a quick quick description of that, please, Scott? Sure. And it's it's a great clarifying question because some some people call cold brew just iced coffee. Others call it um, 
uh, Toddy, others are, are doing um, kind of a nitrogen uh, poured version. And, and really, cold brew, if I understand the, the, the definition correctly, in, in my mind is is taking a extracted uh, ambient or cold temperature extraction, a strong brew of coffee, and adding that extracted liquid to a little bit more uh, water in the end, and then either carbonating it or adding sweetness to it or just adding ice to it to make it a very, very strong brew is kind of what cold brew is. And the, the nitrogen or the, the carbonation phenomena really was born probably as a very direct result of the popularity of things like Guinness. And oh, right. how a, Guinness, a, be- a beautiful Guinness is poured using nitrogen or using a blend of using 75 or 80 percent um, nitrogen and a little bit of oxygen, sorry, CO2 in, in, the, uh, in the tap as well. So that tradition ha- has become kind of big in the specialty coffee world. And it seems like uh, everyone is doing uh, some sort of nitrogen or some sort of cold brew these days in cafes. And, and as a consumer, personally, I, re- I really enjoy it. Um, it's not something that we do at Fundamental. We don't have any cafes, but the cafes that we work with usually have some version of, of iced coffee or cold brew that they sell and the customers really enjoy, particularly in the warmer weather. Oh, so true in Seattle. I bet that would be so nice. The um, Speaking of Guinness, and we have a lot of listeners in Ireland, um, I would go off into Ireland uh, for Microsoft work, and we would, of course, have our experiences at some of the special pubs with, with Guinness. And what I learned about that was that it was really important that the the head on top of Guinness would be the, the size, that white top would be the size of a bishop's collar, is what they would tell me. And that's the right amount uh, for Guinness. Now I'm curious when you have coffee on tap and it's nitrogen infused and it's a lot like Guinness, is there a, a some kind of you know topping on it that's kind of foamy? Yeah, typically there is. Um, and I've, I've had the nitrogen thing at a few different cafes around around town and also also in my travels. And there's usually it's not quite as big as, as the head that you would see on on a properly poured uh, pint of Guinness, but but absolutely, and I think that's part of the reason is it looks it looks pretty and it adds a little bit of texture and mouthfeel when you're enjoying a uh, a nitrogen poured uh, cold brew. Right. It there. It sounds like you had some great projects at Starbucks, and those were really good days and lots of great memories. When you were working on the ice cream tasting, did you have a particularly favorite flavor? I think if uh, I had to pick one, and the, the base was something that was just called Italian roast um, ice cream, and there was one called Java chip, which was these huge chunks of dark chocolate mixed with that uh, Italian roast base that I, I loved. Um, and that particular partnership was with, uh, back in those days, it was with Dryers. And Dryers has subsequently been been taken up by, by Nestle. But prior to that, they were an independent company. And there was a, an amazingly cool guy who was the ice cream taster. And um, I, I, met, I met my brother in uh, the tasting world that day when we first met and started doing all these collaborative ideas and what if we try this and does coffee go with this flavor and what if you know should it be crunchy should it not be crunchy how strong should it be um 
I, I can say that that and, and some of the adventures I had meeting some chefs and working with some coffee and food collaboration with the Aspen Food and Wine Classic were some of the, the most fun days I had in, in coffee that, that weren't involved in going to a producing country. That's fascinating. I'm not sure if you um, have ever worked with Chef Jason Wilson there in Seattle on some of these culinary projects, but he has some great coffee recipes and works with coffee flour. He does. Um, maybe I didn't, I didn't share this with you, but I'm actually one of the people involved with the coffee flour project. Oh, fantastic. So, well, that's great yeah, news. So I, I've known Jason for over a decade, actually. He's a good friend, and um, I met Jason, funny enough, uh, working on the Aspen Food and Wine Classic. Uh, Starbucks partnered with a, a handful of chefs, some of them local, some of them on the national level. And Jason was one of the local guys when he had his restaurant Crush here in Seattle. And um, he's since become a great friend. And we've uh, hung out and done lots of great, amazing coffee tastings together. And I've been working on coffee flour together for about five years. And uh, that product continues to grow and, and be an exciting part of, uh, of my weekly activity. So Jason's had great success. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky to call him a friend and a collaborator. He's, he's a great guy. Oh, that's so fun. He actually was um, nice to join us on one of our show, shows, and we really enjoyed hearing about all that he's up to, and also some of his favorite coffee stories, as well as just opening the lake house there in Bellevue, which has been a tremendous success. I enjoyed his restaurant crush as well. He's he's truly amazing, but thank you for sharing that connection. It's, oh, it's sure. a fun... It's such a fun coffee community, uh, especially there in Seattle. Uh, So, Scott, we're going to thank you so much for talking about some of your fun projects there at Starbucks. And when we come back from the break, our listeners would love to hear how you started Fundamental Coffee and what it's like running that business and um, a little bit more about Third Wave. So we look forward to coming back after the break. Thank you. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. My favorite coffee story is brought to you by Anikona Farm, where every bean we grow represents a great story somewhere in the world. When you buy coffee from Anikona Farm, you're investing in new memories, stories, and experiences. We harvest our beans with your future story in our heart. So, from our heart to yours, enjoy the Anikona experience. May your coffee story be as rich and delicious as our Kona coffee with love. Please visit Anikona.com and get your Anikona Story coffee special today. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to my favorite coffee story with Aniko Samoji. 
Drop us a line and share your story. Our email address is orders at anikona.com. Again, that's orders at anikona.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to My Favorite Coffee Story. We've been having such a nice time with Scott McMartin, who was uh, Director of Global Coffee Advocacy at Starbucks for uh, just about 20 years. And now he actually owns and runs Fundamental Coffee in Seattle and Austin. And we had just been talking about how at Starbucks, how things had evolved there and working on some of the coffee blends and also even things like ice cream and uh, some of those projects that Scott was involved in. And now we can't wait to talk a little bit more about how Scott started Fundamental Coffee. How did that start, please? Sure. Uh, And and thanks for having me on the show once again. It's been great fun. Um, Fundamental was uh, started out of sort of a necessity. I was working for a, a company in Austin and they were sort of winding down their activities and, and three of the principals who were involved in the company, we became very close over the period of working together. And we thought one day, hey, we've got sitting at this particular barbecue restaurant, we've got a coffee guy, we've got an operations guy, we've got a marketing guy and a sales guy. Um, we're all currently looking for something to do. So why not uh, start a coffee company? And um, that might sound silly, but uh, not as silly as some of the response I got when I told people about this back in Seattle, where it was sort of met with uh, greetings like, wow, another coffee company. That's just what Seattle needs, Um, which has become Seattle, San Francisco and Portland have become sort of the epicenter for seemingly it was was breweries back in the early 90s or the late 80s. And it's almost like a new roaster is popping up every every few weeks uh, on these West Coast cities. So starting up a roastery took some took some courage and starting a coffee company took some courage since there's such a competitive place there. But I, I felt like we could do something a little bit different. And seeing how much the, the shift has gone away from sort of classic dark roast coffees and uh, highlighting blends that showcased each origin as a combination of origins versus just a, a single origin uh, took me back to some of my roots um, 20 plus years ago, starting off in coffee. So we thought the name fundamental was representative of let's do something that's really basic. And the basic things for us were buying really good ingredients from people we've known for a long time. So buying coffee from farms, farmers and importers that we've known forever we know we're doing the right thing on the farm level and roasting the coffee a way that's harkening back to how we all grew up drinking coffee, which was sort of the West Coast tradition of dark roast. And then uh, the last piece was uh, was really showcasing blends, which have become kind of a lost art and often described by a lot of the, the kids today, the young guys in the, uh, the third wave as, if it's not a single origin unblended coffee, you must be using cheap ingredients because it's a blend. And my wine background said that you know most of the best winemakers I knew, their entire career as a winemaker was based on their ability to take agricultural products from the field and in some cases, various degrees of ripeness, in other cases, blending dynamic flavors with more delicate flavors and putting those together to make a great end product. Uh, to me, that, that art is, is identical in coffee. So 
if I'm able to showcase the really extraordinary hard work that a farmer has done in Guatemala by using a little bit of their coffee in a blend, they had a signature note of, of dark, rich cocoa, and then adding a little bit of coffee that might come from uh, a specific region I know in Kenya, and then adding a little bit of coffee coming from the Terrazur region in Costa Rica, which has acidity and citric notes, then I've got something pretty special. And I can talk about all three of those things blended together and have them be harmonious, but also have them show each region's potential. It's truly that the individual parts become something greater when they're put together in a blend. Well, and speaking of blends, Scott, how did you come up with the Humbucker blend? I love the name. Thanks. Yeah, the some of the names are 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 pretty unusual, and, and we have one called Single Coil and one called Humbucker. And being a longtime guitar enthusiast and a and an amateur musician, I I love guitars, and um, the sound of an electric guitar is amplified through what's called a pickup. And a pickup is kind of a, a microphone, if you will, that gets plugged into an amplifier. And electric guitars are fitted with uh, either a humbucker, which is a bold, kind of uh, big, intense sound. And we thought, okay, this this is sort of similar to the humbucker blend that we're going to put together, which has copies from Sumatra and copies from Guatemala, and copies from Colombia that have big body and are bold and uh, really cut through um, milk, whether it's an espresso drink or uh, stand out as being dynamic. And the single coil, just kind of a contrast, is, is brighter. It has more clarity, uh, cleaner, uh, less aftertaste. And that particular blend we put together is, is a blend of Latin American coffees that are bright, crisp, and clear and have some of a bell tone clarity. So there was, with a lot of the names we have, uh, cue based to music and even our name fundamental as a piece of music the fundamental frequency is sort of the lowest sound a human ear can hear and our logo which is kind of a wave pattern represents one of the the uh, sinusoids of a fundamental frequency i'm sure people have now changed the channel since i've got through that whole long description but um <laughs> that, that really Not is at how all. uh how we came up with um the, the musical texture that's part of our part of our heritage a part of our brand well, I really like your fundamental logo. It's really nice. You know, it's a black circle, and then it has the never-ending wave pattern. And it's basically a stylized representation of, like, the third harmonic, you know, basic, a common concept in music. And like you say, coffee and music often go together. So I think oh, um, I think your logo is really nice. And I like how you actually talk about blending is not a cop-out. Uh, that it's actually has lots of positives. How did you come up with your stem winder blend? Well, stem winder, um, it's interesting. That was sort of a, a, a harken back to the old political speech, which was thought to be a, referred to as a stem winder, it would be kind of a long description or a long speech was one piece. And the other element was um, a breakthrough in watchmaking technology was when people didn't have to rely on a key to wind their watch. People would actually keep the key in their pocket and lose the key, and then they could use their, their watch any longer. So a stem winder was something that actually was a breakthrough because the watch was thought to be of higher quality because you could wind it uh, without using a key. The stem itself had a winding mechanism on it. So 
that's where Stemwinder came from. So a little, a little uh, obscure and fun, but uh, we, we again try to have a little bit of fun with these names, so they have they have some history and a little bit of of, uh, of heritage with, with who we are as people. I like watching. Oh, that's that's so true. I think what's really also special about fundamental coffee is how you really focus on quality as well as value and um, your various aspects at fundamental where you focus on that quality and consistency, but you also focus on making sure that the farmers are fairly compensated. We talked a little bit about this, but also ensuring that, you know, workers are safe and also the environment is well taken care of. Please tell us a little bit more about those special aspects of fundamental. Sure. I think for us, the, the preservation of what is largely a very, very delicate ecosystem in coffee-growing countries is, is pretty critical, and not just for the survival of the coffee business, but for the survival of us as people. And during my career at Starbucks, I was really fortunate to work on the ethical sourcing guidelines called Coffee and Farmer Equity Practices. And as one of the, the authors of, of that code of conduct, if you will, I was fortunate enough to, to learn so much about agriculture and not just the crop improvements and crop yields, but the effects of, of uh, water supply being damaged by being located close to coffee mills and what could be done about uh, keeping coffee pulp uh, out of the water supply and what sort of conditions are going to help communities thrive. Uh, where in some cases the education level is very low. So we did things like supporting schools, uh, supporting initiatives to ensure uh, clean drinking water were accessible to people who were in coffee communities. And those same sets of values, because they were in need anyway, and they were things that we were pushing forward in Starbucks to work with partners that were on the growing side to do this great work many of those same farmers and same people who are involved in this process and in the transition of the coffee industry, I remain close to. And those guys are sort of my suppliers today. I don't buy the same sort of volume I did back at Starbucks, but I've maintained those relationships and buy from those same folks I know are doing a great job. And it's been important to me that we can separate ourselves that way. And I, I think you asked earlier, Anko, about what's changed in the industry. There's so much more awareness uh, of, of all the things that are going on in coffee-growing countries in the last 20 years. And it's a movement that's happened in food, uh, whether it's coffee or in, in agriculture, all over the world. People want to understand where their food came from. And to some degree, it might sound like it's uh, satirical, but to have a relationship with the people who grew your product is uh, it's important to a lot of consumers. People want not, not just to have value, but have an understanding that, that there was care and uh, craftsmanship and passion in where their food came from. And for me, it, it's, it translates very much to what we do at Fundamental in terms of putting together very, very high-quality products. We, I'm huge fans of a lot of, uh, let's say, historic American brands. Filson is one of them. I work with those guys and do a lot of events in their stores. It's an old Seattle company, and they make luggage and uh dry goods that are, that are built to last generations. And I want people to buy fundamental and, and think that, you know, the guys who, who bought this coffee and roasted this coffee and packaged this coffee care about what happens 
uh, in the place where this coffee came from, and they also are working really hard to make sure I get a super fresh product delivered to me that speaks of quality and is a good value and isn't super priced and based on marketing, but it's based on integrity and, and the highest of quality. Well, it seems like Fundamental does an incredible job in making sure that all your blends, you know, they're they're respectful of the countries and the farmers, and um, I think that's that's very special part of your company. Before we close, I think um, our listeners would love to know um, quickly what are your favorite aspects of running Fundamental. Well, I, I tell people this: I, I still do consulting in the coffee space. And I get asked that question, isn't it great to run your own company? And um, my, my joke is always that I'm going to keep running it until someday where I don't have to have, where I have to have a real job again. And it's been so great to be able to spend time with my 14-year-old daughter, pick her up from school, and also you know, spend time roasting in the evening if I have to, and not having to work uh, conventional, if you will, hours. And also knowing that... that uh, you know, everyone's dream, I guess, is to you know be be their own boss. And uh, the problem with that is you can't you can't really quit so easily, and you can't complain about the boss because it's really yourself. Um, that's I guess the downside. But it's <laughs> it's been it's been fun, and you have to be fully prepared to uh, be wearing every single hat from roaster and buyer, which are the glamorous ones, to you know guy who. Uh, Cleans the roaster to guy who changes the tire when you get a flat delivering coffee to guy who adjusts the machine at one of your clients' cafes. And I, I love doing all that stuff. At the end of the day, no matter what the conversation is, I get to talk about coffee and, and why I'm passionate about it. And, you know, we, someone said this to me recently, you know, you're so lucky because you show up delivering coffee to people and everyone's nice to you. And I'm not delivering bad news. I'm delivering, you know, oh, this is going to be this little mini vacation. I get to deliver to people where for three minutes they can have a cup of coffee and forget about their crappy boss or forget about the difficult day. It's, it's truly an oasis. And, and I love doing that. That's, that's super fun. And people want to talk about coffee, even if it's just, um, you know, the sort of apologies that, you know, I use a little milk in my coffee. Is that okay? Um, <laughs> the end of the day for me, once, once, someone buys the coffee for me, I'm, I'm, they can do whatever they like with it. I'm, I'm happy if they drink it black. I'm happy if they drink it with cream. You want to put sugar in it. You want to put, what, it's, it's your coffee. You now own it. And over time, um, people, I, I find go on that journey and they may have started using a lot of sugar or sweetener or additives. And in a very short amount of time, people are telling me what their favorite blend is and how they only drink it black in French press. And they can't believe they used to use milk or all these funny stories and it's it's such a personal drink and people have so much ritual around the coffee experience and i think for me honestly that's what's kept me around for it's going to be 30 years i think next year in coffee and one faster than the other and it's always changing it's always growing and um you know you, you never know really half of anything with this this industry it changes so much and that's it's exciting keeps me around it keeps me kind of interested in, in doing the next deal and I take inspiration from my friend Alfred Pete, who, you know, he was 70 plus years old and still would challenge you about, you know, why you chose this component for the blend or how you're going to make next year's blend better. And that's a, a lot of um, great creativity and positivity to draw from. Oh, 
Definitely. And we have loved hearing about your story, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. What an amazing journey. We appreciate hearing about those early Starbucks days, sourcing the perfect coffee bean, hearing about your fundamental stories and your travels to over 20 countries. We are so grateful to you, Scott. Thank you for joining us. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. And you can continue the conversation at radio at myfavoritecoffeestory.com. And we wish you a great relaxing week. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking an hour out of your busy week to join us on My Favorite Coffee Story. Please tune in again for another edition with your host, Aniko Samoji, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, we hope you'll have a relaxing week.